in the 40s and 50s and 60s and uh, we're going to get warmed up by really one of the one of the greatest rabbis um, in America who is just a, an amazing pastor and teacher um, and, and uh, educator uh, and thinker and one of my dear friends who I studied with uh, studied learned from uh, for many years and not only is he a great educator who we've had here at VBM before but his topic is amazing. As long as the candle burns, repair is possible. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and the Musar movement. Some of you we know have no idea what Musar is. Some of you we know have been doing Musar work for decades. And all of that is just great and wonderful uh, to have that diversity of experience. <clears throat> Our plan today is to have roughly, um, roughly 40 to 45 minutes of a presentation. Um, and you should have received the source sheet by email. And if you did not, don't worry because AJ just posted it in the chat over there. And if you still don't see that, don't worry because Rabbi Exler is gonna have it on screen share. So you're covered in three ways and you can reach out to me if you're still not covered. And after that 40 to 45 minutes frontal, we'll have the chance to move in towards um, some questions um, and conversation. And we'll stay right on time today to end at two o'clock mountain four o'clock Eastern time today. Um, we're, we're, we're fortunate to partner today's event with Congregation Bethel, 90-year-old um, co conservative congregation in, in North Central Phoenix. And, and we're, we're fortunate to have uh, a new rabbi of that community uh, here in town and here on call this, Rabbi Nitzan Stein-Koken, who I've had the chance to get to know yeah. a bit. And she's gonna do our introduction of Rabbi Exler today. So Rabbi Nitzan, please take it away. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Ankelovich. Uh, hello, all my friends here who I know and don't know. It's always um, a pleasure to see new faces, especially when we're in the pandemics and also good faces. Musa has been a topic in our community. Our adult uh, educator, Wendy Rosef, has, has had lunch and learns, and some of our members who I see here have studied a little Musar. And so, and so it is a special treat to have you here and learn with you, Rabbi Exler. Um, you are the senior rabbi of Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, the Bayit, which is a large modern Orthodox synagogue in the Bronx. Um, you grew up in Baltimore, have a BA in biology from Brandeis University and MA in Bible from Bernard Revel Graduate School. And you studied also in Eretz HaKodesh in, uh, at Yeshiva Taretzion, uh, in the Yeshiva University Beit Midrash of Yeshivat Ma'ale Gilboa. So you bring a, a lot of wonderful learning and you received your ordination as rabbi from Yeshivat Chovevei Torah, rabbinical school, and you were there as a Wexner graduate fellow also. Um, and what else? You have so many interesting and good things that you bring. You're a member of the International Rabbinic Fellowship um, and sit on the rabbinic advisory board of Eshel, Yeshivat Chovevei Torah, and Yeshivat Maharat, ordaining uh, women, Orthodox women, right? Um, for rabbis, also very important in our times moving forward. You live in Riverdale with your wife Shira and your children Ilan, Talia, and Yair. We're honored to have you here to learn from you, and I'll hand it over to you, Rabbi Exler. 
Thank you, Rabbi Steinkoken. I'm so happy to virtually be here with you. I wish we were sitting around a big conference room table together, um, being able to fully see each other and uh, experience the flavor of in-person learning. Uh, but I'm so grateful for the silver linings of this incredibly challenging and difficult time, the opportunities to learn together uh, from afar um, and connect in this virtual space. Um, thank you to uh, Beth L for partnering for this program. Wonderful to meet Rabbi Stein Koken and meet members of that community. And of course, I'm so grateful to Valley Beit Midrash, one of the incredible purveyors of deep and rich Torah, um, Torah for its own sake, the Torah of ethics and social justice. Um, I am a, a friend and a fan and a student of Rav Shmuley and uh, you Rav Shmuley are really one of the teachers of our generation. Um, your, your books are on my bookshelf, and uh, but your Torah is so deeply in my heart and I really follow your lead and your leadership and uh, the, the VBM community is so blessed to have you as a premier adult educator and visionary uh, and our Jewish community and, and global community is blessed to have you as a role model and teacher. And um, I'm especially in particular wanted to mention the work of Arizona Jews for Justice that I follow um, and really learn from and, uh, and Eddie's leadership there, uh, just incredibly moved and inspired by your work. And so much of it really links to what I wanna to try to talk about today. While Musar in a sense um, is, is certainly not the same as social justice, ultimately either one without the other is, is an incomplete expression of what it means um, to live out a Jewish life. Uh, and so my goal is to introduce and share with you uh, a vision uh, of Rav Yisrael Salanter, the, really the creator of the Musar movement. I, I wanna open with this um, sort of uh, framing question. Uh, in our synagogue, Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, the Bayit uh, here in the Bronx, and please feel welcome um, to visit us uh, in person when that time becomes possible again, or to zoom into our activities uh, during this time. Um, in, our, in our weekly class on Thursday mornings that um, I teach on the prophets, we're studying Isaiah. And one of the students in the class, almost every week asks the same question. Yes, Rabbi, Isaiah tells us to circumcise our hearts. He tells us that the true call of the Jewish tradition is not just prayer and sacrifice, but it is to extend a hand to the vulnerable, to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry. But the Bible doesn't actually tell us how to transform ourselves from the way we are to answer its call to that highest ethical duty. It charges us over and over again with all of these incredibly lofty and challenging responsibilities. It offers us the vehicle of tshuva, of repentance, to go from the people we are to the people it challenges us to be. But it doesn't offer us the toolkit. It doesn't give us that bridge, that self-help book, um, or that psychological guide to how to actually transform ourselves from the aspiring people that we are um, to the people that it charges us to be. Where is that in the Bible? Where is that in the Talmud? Uh, this student asks me week in and week out. And it's a really, really important question uh, because if we survey rabbinic literature, biblical literature, and I'd even say if we survey some of the books that we classically define as Musar texts 
from the medieval period texts texts of uh, and guidebooks of ethical growth and and perfection from the Middle Ages and even from the early modern period. What we'll find is they do a great job of collecting and distilling the traits which we want to display, um, whether it's patience or whether it's zeal, um, you know, whatever that, that um, encyclopedia of, of ethical attributes are that we want to cultivate and develop and the ones that we want to push back against, whether it's on avoiding jealousy, avoiding anger, um, we can categorize, we can collect the verses and the rabbinic teachings that talk about them. But where do we really find in these bodies of literature some systematic approach of tools of how to actually become those people and develop those traits. This is obviously an extreme formulation. There are hints to them and there are little insights that we can glean going from the book of Proverbs or even from the narratives of Genesis uh, all the way through um, the medieval and early modern period. But I do think it is a fair um, contention or argument to say that the organized approach of how to become the people that our texts charge, uh, charge us to be doesn't really develop, um, and reasonably so, um, until modern times. Um, and really, if we were to point to the single figure who is the leader in organizing, developing, and putting out there that approach, I believe it is Rav Yisrael Salanter. Uh, and what I want to try to do over the next half an hour or so is touch lightly on his biography and his historical context, where I am absolutely a novice, I'm not a scholar, a scholar of history, um, but just to try to lightly touch on a layman's sense of, you know, what that context and environment that he was working in and responding to was, and then to really journey through some of his collected writings to pick out little texts and moments that help us see uh, what he was um, peddling, what he was putting forth uh, and trying to create. Uh, and I think we'll notice along the way the development of a somewhat systematic approach and a toolbox to how to become those people that we want to be. I invite us to engage with these texts, not as dispassionate readers, uh, but as people who are asking ourselves as we learn them, what is a trait that I want to cultivate or work on in my own life? What is my journey to becoming the person I aspire to be and upholding that Torah vision and value? And are these tools and are these, um, you know, Jewish psychological insights ones that resonate for me um, to really push ourselves to zero in on that question? Yes, I know who I aspire to be, but how do I get there? And is this approach feel like a useful Jewish approach? Is it an authentically Jewish or uniquely Jewish approach? Or is it just a putting uh, some Jewish words to popular psychology, which would be fine. Um, but I think it's interesting to try to think through that question as well as we read. So does this resonate? Does it feel like a Jewish approach in some unique way? Um, and you'll hopefully take me at my word as we go through that these things that we are reading really are innovative um, in their time. And I think where we'll come to at the end is a little bit of a sense of what Rabbi Strauss Salanter put forth, and then hopefully have at least a few minutes um, to kind of close on the opposition that he met with, um, which I'll just sort of lay out at the beginning, I think surrounds the idea of how is, how can one effectively utilize these tools without Musar or ethical uh, self-development and training becoming a religion unto itself, 
Um, would it be so bad if it were is a, a, a fair thought question. Um, but how does one integrate that practice along with all the other pieces of what it means to live a full um, holistic and, uh, and enriching Jewish life? Um, so we'll see a little bit about um, what the nature of the opposition to what certainly sounds like a great thing is and where it came from and why. Uh, and there'll be plenty of time, I hope, for questions and answers at the end. Feel free to chat in your questions as we go. Um, and if I uh, grab a glance and can respond as we go, I'm happy to. Otherwise, I'll be sure to circle back to everything uh, at the end. Um, so I'm going to share my screen uh, and begin our journey together. I, I want to jump to the actually towards the end of the source sheet. If you opened up the PDF that was um, linked in the chat, you'll find this at the very, very end, which is just a little timeline. A lot of my learning about Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, in addition to the children's um, Jewish biography that I, and this is part of my connection to him, that I was gifted as a youngster, and I still remember falling asleep on the floor under our family's dinner table at the Passover Seder, clutching this book, and being so inspired and curious about this figure who um, serves as such a, um, a beacon in Jewish tradition for living an ethical life, an interpersonally ethical life. Um, and so in addition to that child's biography that planted the first seeds about Rav Yisrael Salanter um, in my own head and heart, um, a lot, a lot of my research came from a wonderful book by Professor Emanuel Etkis entitled Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and the Musar Movement. Um, Professor Etkis is a scholar of, of a number of major figures from uh, the 19th century in particular uh, in Europe uh, and their contributions to Jewish life. Um, and his study of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter fits into that framework. I highly recommend this book. It is um, scholarly and accessible and really paints a, a robust picture of what Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was trying to do um, and the extent to which he uh, did or didn't achieve it. Um, uh, good. So, um, let me just take a brief uh, journey with you into the biography. So uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was born Israel Lipkin. Um, he, he took his name Yisrael Salanter from um, the place where he went to study and his teacher Rabbi Zundel of Salant. Uh, already as a young man, he was sent to study in Salant. And you can see even just by skimming the biography, he did move around uh, Eastern Europe and to Western Europe over the course of his career, um, his rabbinic life. Um, both uh, moving uh, in order to seek out new Torah study opportunities, moving for somewhat political reasons, um, where he was disagreeing with the approach of the authorities in areas in which he was living at a couple of points and wound up moving on. Um, for example, what we see in 1848, fled Vilna for Kovna to be free of the pressure of the authorities to serve as a Gemara teacher in a rabbinical seminary that was established in Vilna, where he didn't like the approach there, and he wound up moving on. Um, and even towards the end of his life in 1880, where he left for Paris to try to um, make a real dent in the uh, life and religious worldview um, of the Russian and Polish immigrant community in Paris. Um, and so you see uh, someone who was engaged deeply in community life. He was, uh, Rav Shmuley and I were talking about this uh, before we came on. A lot of his motivation was an attempt to bring Jews closer to Judaism. Um, and um, thinking about the Musar approach, not just as valuable on its own terms, but as putting out a compelling and powerful picture of Judaism that could capture and captivate Jews who were disaffected for any of a variety of reasons. And we'll come back to that just in a moment. 
um, was very much consistent with his worldview. And we should keep that in the back of our heads. So this was someone who lived in the bulk uh, of the 19th century in Europe, uh, again, Eastern and then towards Western Europe, um, and, uh, and had a, a really a prominent and largely successful career, what you get a little bit of a sense of here as well. Um, and I'll just spend a moment to acknowledge was Rabbi Israel Salanter was a tremendous, tremendous Torah scholar. The fact that he focused in on one particular area um, of Musar was not at the expense of his encyclopedic Torah knowledge. In fact, there's an extraordinary story uh, about a time as he was kind of moving around um, Eastern Europe trying to spread the word about this Musar movement that he really was self-consciously and self-aware uh, with self-awareness developing and, and promoting. Um, he had visited a particular Beit Midrash, a particular study house, and um, he, he had listed up, as is the custom in study houses, he had posted up a, a daf mekorot, a page of sources, with a lecture that he intended to deliver um, on those topics, on, on those sources. And it's customary to post that. The students go to the you know, bookshelves, they take the books, they prepare, and then you come back in a couple of hours and deliver the lecture. And um, someone who was opposed to his approach from that particular yeshiva um, swapped out the page of sources to a page of sources of kind of nonsense, so to speak, a bunch of unrelated sources that he had just scribbled on a page and put up. Rav Salanter came back to the study hall a couple of hours later to deliver the lecture, grabbed the source sheet and saw that it was not the one he had put up. And without missing a beat, he got up and offered a scintillating lecture, pulling together all those sources to make a particular argument. Um, so this was someone who has an encyclopedic, encyclopedic knowledge of Torah. And you also see, of course, the Musar um, and interpersonal ethic there. He didn't get up and shout at anybody and say some good for nothing came in here and messed up my plan. Um, but he modeled his, um, his ethic uh, of just gently, modestly, and wisely being able to, um, to recover from a challenging moment without humiliating or embarrassing anyone. Um, so this is just a little bit of a glimpse of his, his life and times. Uh, and before we delve into his text, just take one more moment to talk about the overall um, kind of trends and, um, and forces that were pulling um, at, at Jews growing up in, uh, in, in the nations in which Rabbi Israel Salanter was involved in Europe in, in, in the 19th century. Um, you have, and again, here there are many scholars greater than I, but just a layperson's basic sense. Um, you have the Haskalah, you have the Enlightenment, which is drawing Jews into um, the universities and into a, a real enlightened academic scholarly approach to Judaism, which was not necessarily inconsistent with traditional observance, but often did draw um, you know, its adherents away from some pieces of traditional practice, either faith or practice or both, um, that was drawing, you know, drawing students and especially learned, intellectually sophisticated students were being pulled sort of away or into um, this kind of uh, attitude, approach, and orientation to Judaism, which was of great concern to traditionalist um, proponents like Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And you also have the movement towards Hasidism, which is its own kind of response, um, which creates Again, not a movement away from traditional observance, but a sort of a, a different approach, a different emphasis um, on simplicity and passion um, without necessarily always emphasizing, um, you know, extended sophistication and rigor in Torah study. Um, sometimes thinking about, you know, one of the classic points and points of debate with Hasidut was sort of a um, 
a, a sense of being able to access God in all places and times, moving away from a slightly more rigid sense of the times of prayer and those details. Um, again, all coming from good places of trying to think about ways to maintain an engaged, connected Jewish life um, for Jews. But these were pulling Jews in different sorts of directions and values, um, and oftentimes kind of in the aggregate away from one approach of kind of classical traditional observance in its fullness, um, you know, that had some historical weight and connection um, and lots of polemics and, and challenge emerging around this. And in one view of Rabbi Strauss Salanter's approach, again, as we'll see, was Musar and ethical development for its own terms, but also as a way to paint a picture of Judaism that could be compelling to people. Why should you be Jewish, you know, and traditionally observant? Because traditional observance is consonant with and develops ideas of ethical excellence and deep psychological you know, growth um, that any person would want to have. And our tradition actually is a, you know, carries the banner um, of how to do that best. And so that's, you know, those, those forces are in the backdrop of, of Rabbi Strauss Salanter's, um, you know, approach. So again, let's circle back now um, to the sheet and jump into how he develops these ideas. Um, so the first is an idea, um, and, and most of his writings are collected in a book called Or Yisrael, literally the light of Israel bearing his name, the light of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Um, a lot of it collected by his student, Rabbi Yitzchak Blazer, Blazer um, who collected some of his letters and writings, and in that work also writes a lot of his own reflections, collects sayings of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. It's sort of our primary source um, for the approach of Rabbi Israel Salander, either in his own writing or in the kind of developed uh, analysis and collected, um, you know, reflections of his one of his primary students. I'm sorry that the scan is a little bit faint um, on the English side, uh, but we'll zero in here. So in, in in letter number thirty in Or Israel, he really develops a lot of his undergirding kind of philosophy of the psychology of repairing traits. Now, the idea of repairing traits, again, goes all the way back to the Bible, um, very, very deeply developed in the, in the medieval period. And certainly the sages of the Talmud talk a lot about, you know, individual traits and about overall, you know, developing our character. Um, Pirkei Avot, certainly, which is often quoted by Rabbi Israel Salanter, you know, is a rabbinic text, which is very focused on um, character development, particular traits, um, but how do we do it and what do we need to understand about ourselves, about the uh, impediments to growth um, and the directions of growth? Um, and here Rabbi Israel Salander talks a little bit um, about sort of two parallel tracks. One is um, the in the moment subduing of our evil inclination, the Yetzer Hara, um, and talks about that critical activity. Um, and then second is the overall process of tikkun hamidot, of really sort of training ourselves um, to perfect our traits. He has a key line um, here uh, where he says, um, the entire purpose of man's existence is to purge every negative trait and character attribute from his heart. Right. There is a general approach in the school of Musar, um, which is that one sort of in many ways first needs to get rid of the negative and then cultivate the positive. From Psalms, right. Turn away from evil and do good often needs to progress in that order. Um, and so the first um, mandate uh, and mission as a person is to get rid of the negative character traits and attributes from our heart. Now Rabbi Shel Salanter develops a really interesting idea about 
um, how these two things, the process of rectification of tikkun hamidot and the process of subduing our evil inclination um, kind of work in parallel. Um, and he says, in general, when a person is young and has not yet faced life's tribulations, it's difficult for him to engage in subduing his negative character traits. In contrast, it's relatively easy for him to rectify them. And he quotes a passage from Pierre Avot that, that sort of he interprets to defend this idea. I'm going to just read the second half of this um, and then circle back to try to explain. Um, however, when it comes to someone who is older, right, because of the vicissitudes of age, one is more set in their ways and their negative traits are more firm. Sorry, go up, up a little bit. On the other hand, when one is older and more set in his ways, rectifying his midot, his traits, is an onerous task. Because of the vicissitudes of age, he is more set in his ways and his negative traits are more firmly embedded in his heart. Subduing his traits, however, is not so burdensome to him since he is accustomed to the burden of pursuing a livelihood and fulfilling his needs and desires. So we have these sort of two um, processes that are happening uh, kind of in parallel. One is in the moment grappling with an inclination, the urge to get angry, um, the urge towards jealousy, uh, and that requires subduing those negative inclinations. And that's something which he feels you get better at as you get older, um, because over the course of life, we've sort of learned by necessity to do that in a whole host of ways to get by in life. And so just by our general psychological and human training, we've cultivated the capacity to kind of delay gratification or self-restraint. It's, it's very hard to be a successful human being without that. Um, and so that's something which is hard to do as a child, but is much easier to do as, as, a, as an, an adult or an older adult. Um, on the other hand, cultivating and developing sort of good traits um, is something which is sort of easier to do when we're younger, when we're still forming habit, um, and harder to do when we're older, um, when we, our habits and ways are more entrenched. And therefore, he says, this being so, the appropriate focus of divine service varies according to one's stage in life. While in one's youth, a person should concentrate on rectifying their traits so that one can serve Hashem with ardor and happiness. As one grows older, one's divine service should focus on subduing those challenges, which doesn't require so much great fervor and desire. This is one example, and again, we could agree or disagree, but what I think we already start to see here is psychological insight, is a sense that when we understand the psyche and the way people work, uh, and we understand the different components and, and processes that are required towards ethical excellence, um, then we can sort of map out a, a lifelong project of how to become an ethical person. Again, we could, we could quibble on the details, but here we sort of see a kind of a deep thinking and incorporation of psychology, um, you know, which, is, which is fairly newly developing um, in Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's time. He, he re references very much ideas of chitzoniyut and pnimiyut, external and internal, talks about the sort of light forces and dark forces, which in certain ways seem to align with notions of conscious and subconscious that are being developed in, over the course of these decades as well. Um, and he has this very much in his own language. This is just a glimpse of one example where he's incorporating psychological insight to really map out a sort of lifelong vision of, uh, of ethical growth. Now, we're going to start to see um, him utilize the word musar a little bit specifically. Musar is a, a, a hard word exactly to translate, um, whether it's sort of discipline, 
um, you know, or, or truly translates literally as ethical teachings. Um, but it's a word that goes all the way back to the Bible, um, often has an association of uh, the things that a parent transmits to a child um, by way of guidance um, is very much also embedded in the term Musar. Um, and now Rabbi Israel Salanter, in the course of his writings, starts to introduce techniques. How does one actually grow in these ways? Um, and I want to spend a few minutes to move with you through a few of these techniques. And again, invite you as you listen to sort of think, is this parallel similar to the ways in which I try to grow when I'm working on a particular trait or to really zero in on, are these workable, effective in our own lives? If not, what is the way that we do this work if we try to do this work? Um, and, and really challenge ourselves to ask that question and to compare our journey alongside what uh, Rabbi Strauss Philanter is offering up. So the first is energetic or emotional engagement, hit pa'alut, um, from, from po'el, which means to be active, um, to be engaged. Um, so he says, in order to become accustomed to this musar, whose ways branch into two, the first is to inflame the souls, literally to set them on fire through the purification of thought, through these sublime studies, the study of Musar, to learn with lips on fire, with correct apprehension, depicting each idea in a broad manner and bringing it close through familiar imaginings until the heart gets excited, whether to a great or small extent. Thereby, it will be empowered to prepare the limbs to actualize every good deed on its behalf, whether by desire or by strength of will. This is already, you know, a, a, an older idea about kind of working cognitively. And when we have something well set in our mind, it'll carry out through our bodies well. But the unique um, contribution here is the sense of actually working ourselves up, that somehow if we kind of attach to our study, emotional connection and emotional and um, energetic approach, um, then it will sort of be embedded in us more deeply. Um, I think there's a lot of psychology and neuropsychology um, which will support ideas like this. Um, and, um, and we certainly see this kind of idea carried out in, um, in the way many people, people study Musar, sort of trying to really talk about it with energy and excitement um, and, and, and work themselves up. Um, our teacher, uh, I think taught here recently, Rabbi Avi Weiss has always said to me, um, you can't inspire unless you are inspired. Um, and so that's sort of thinking about how we move outwards. Um, but I think it's true that we actually need to inspire ourselves with these ideas. We have to feel that the traits that we're talking about are things that we really care about and that we really want to do. Um, sometimes we will encounter a roadblock in we, when we go through that process and ask, why am I not excited about this area of ethical excellence? And I think through that sort of taking our emotional temperature, we come to understand or engage a little bit more clearly with um, the challenges and possibilities um, that these that these midot sort of offer to us, that these character traits that we want to work on um, offer to us. So that's, that's one. Alongside it, we saw that he said um, there are sort of two branches um, and uh, we're going to get to the overall second one in number four, but there's a sort of second component of this first one of, of energetic emotional engagement, which is this, shinun, repetition or mantra. Um, and here he says, therefore, it is appropriate to repeat Musar's sayings many times over. 
And specifically, when one comes across a saying of the sages or some other words of Musar by which he feels he would be affected and that would penetrate into the chambers of his heart, he should review and repeat it with deep affect many, many times until it becomes engraved, listen to this, until it becomes engraved on the tablets of his heart and as frontlets between his eyes. Then upon his going outside and going to rest upon his bed, the teaching will ring in his ears like a bell and will not depart from his memory. That part about engraved on the tablets of his heart and on, as frontlets between his eyes in the Hebrew is And he continues in Hebrew. When he goes outside and goes to rest on his bed. Here he is in his writings explicitly paraphrasing and repurposing some of the passages, for example, from the Shema where we say these words of the Torah should be, you know, upon, you know, right upon our arm and as frontlets between our eyes, they should be with us when we go out on our way and when we rise up and when we lie down. Um, so he's purposefully, and this, by the way, I'll just plant this now in case we don't get to it at the end about opposition. Part of the opposition to this project is because in, in a very explicit way here, he's sort of saying the work of Musar is tantamount to the entire body of the Torah. Whereas what we say in the Shema is the, all the teachings of the Torah and its commandments should be engraved, uh, you know, on our hearts, should be frontlets upon our eyes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, we they, we should carry them with us as we go on our way. He's sort of substituting um, ethical teachings for the entirety of Torah and commandments and Torah study, um, and that, while again. What he's lifting up is certainly a, a central piece of Torah teaching and Torah values. Whenever something gets elevated over and above everything else, it, it runs a risk and it will garner some opposition. Um, and so I think he's very intentional here in his language. And, and, and this is the kind of thing that provokes pushback. You're making ethical behavior more important than all the other commandments. And um, that's certainly a debate which we see play out in various kind of communities and Jewish uh, vision approaches until today. Um, how do we lift something up as important without elevating it over everything else? And if we do, what are the consequences? That's an aside, um, but just to but but to situate this back in our context, um, he's sort of saying this is what we should do even with a, a particular saying. Um, that, that will help us connect with the trait that we're trying to cultivate. So this is repetition or mantra. Um, I do find this to be a helpful tool. Uh, this is a foundation of um, our, our practice of prayer. We don't say, uh, you know, the, let's say of the Siddur. The Siddur does not have different words, uh, an entirely different, you know, practice of prayer for every day. We repeat mantra and repetition is very central to um, Jewish liturgy and the, the cycle of the year. Um, and he's really developing that, um, you know, as an approach for, for Musar. And so he's, he's utilizing the technologies that exist in Jewish tradition, um, but now applying them to character development. I'll just say one more thing, um, one more the story, uh, which the title of this, um, you know, learning together uh, comes from. Um, is the story of his having gone uh, very, very late to the synagogue um, on the Saturday night, the story goes, the Saturday night of, uh, of, of Slichot um, and anticipating um, the new year. Uh, and uh, he had had a problem with his shoe. Um, his shoe broke on the way to synagogue. And uh, he happened upon the shoemaker's store um, and saw that the light was on. And he came in and said, my shoe just broke. Could you repair my shoe? 
And the, the cobbler said, you know, as long as the candle burns, it's possible to fix it, right? The message of the, of the shoemaker was, I'm still working, I'm happy to fix your shoe. But, you know, in the mindset of, uh, you know, repentance and the, and the high holiday season, Rabbi Yisrael Salantar interpreted this for himself, um, you know, as the statement, as long as the candle burns, the candle of the soul, you know, as long as the light is on and we're breathing, it's possible to repair, we can fix. And, and the story goes that he took this as one of his mantras and he said it kind of frequently on a daily basis for a period of time and really set himself towards the, the, the path of this work in so many ways. Um, so that's, uh, you know, an example of him utilizing that mantra technology. Uh, okay, um, so this was kind of part one. Um, I, we're just zipping along and I want to try to touch on a couple more of the, um, of the methods. Um, so the second is anticipation and preparation. Uh, and, and now he comes to this kind of second branch that he referred to earlier. Um, one is kind of energizing ourselves and you know, implanting these things deep in us. Um, and along with that is the mantra tool. Um, the second is um, the wisdom of the world which is to have foresight. This is, um, comes from another rabbinic saying from Pirkei Avot, who is wise, one who sees that which is you know, to be born, um, that which is coming. Um, to look from the get-go before the days of evil come, to prepare counsel and a plan of how to conduct oneself and others, to diminish the manner to make the experience easier until awe grows greater than desire. And again, coming back to that idea, the whole purpose of a person you know, is to subdue our negative traits. Um, and, and, you know, and utilize wisdom to do that. Um, so here is, is an, another sort of technique and reminder, um, which is that ethical development depends on having a plan and anticipating and preparing. Um, in one of the um, little Musar groups that I had a, have had a chance to do um, with some rabbinical students at our rabbinical school, Yeshivat Chovei Torah, one of them, the, stu the, the students who participated at that time uh, is with us, and I'm so happy to see Rev. Lauren here, who's a, a great um, student and teacher of Musar in his own right. Um, you know, one of the things we often bumped up against as we were working on a particular trait was to sort of say, you know, okay, if I've really been working on it, then perhaps at the, you know, and I know situations in which it's going to arise, um, I can sort of get myself ready. But what happens when it pops up and I'm not prepared for it? How do I sort of make a plan to sort of train myself and be ready? How do I look out and see possible pitfalls that could come and anticipate them effectively, right? Character development, you know, requires a knowledge of the self and some type of foresight about how we might react in upcoming situations uh, that invites us to sort of have a plan and an approach. Um, and this kind of work, um, however we carry it out, is another tool in the toolbox and another psychological insight um, that, that Rabbi Yisrael Salanter offers that, again, is relatively new um, in his time in sort of creating a Jewish uh, toolbox and approach to, to self-improvement. Um, another technique which is central, and here he sort of really marries um, his encyclopedic knowledge of Torah and passion for Torah study in its own right with uh, ethical development is to talk about the fact that one of the ways we cultivate our traits is to study the commandments that surround those traits or the areas where those traits would play out. Um, and here he has sort of one of his classic, um, you know, overall points and insights and contributions to Jewish tradition, which is there are areas of mitzvot which kind of we, we naturally or by habit have kind of formed and don't seem to have any challenge about, um, and others where we seem, despite our professed commitment to Torah in its entirety, um, to struggle with, right? And here he contrasts um, 
you know, the injunction to abstain from non-kosher meat is naturally implanted within the souls of Israel, right? Our kind of nature, as he's envisioning it and arguing it, um, you know, it would be really hard to overcome that and eat something non-kosher, right? That's just not, that's not, a, a, that's not in our field of challenge right now. However, in the multitude of our sinful business dealings, we find just the opposite. Nobody's seeking advice. People are doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, they're executing deceptive or strong arm tactics. And yet the Torah treats these, these are both commandments, the commandment not to eat non-kosher and the commandment to be ethically just in our business dealings and not to engage in stealing are all equally transgressions of the Torah. One of them seems to challenge us and the other one doesn't. So how do we approach the one that challenges us? If a man will direct his heart and soul, I hear these things are in the, the third person masculine singular, but of course we'll broaden them. If a person directs one's heart and soul to learn in depth the laws germane to business matters from the Talmud and the halachic authorities, each according to their ability, a character transformation will take place. And over time, you know, the actual learning and internalizing the fullness of the values of the Torah will impact us. And this is, I think, a statement of great faith in our tradition, which I really appreciate, um, which is the sense that if we are really honest about what it means to grow um, in, you know, in, in Jewish ethics, um, then one of the central things we need to do is not sort of external to the Torah to sort of take mantras um, and, you know, just work out of our own psyche. Um, but it is to come back to the commandments themselves and deepen our understanding of them. And in so doing, we'll sort of come to internalize their message and to our behavior will change and develop uh, in kind. Um, this is something which, you know, following Rav Yisrael Salanter, um, uh, the great Rav Cook, um, you know, the, one of the early chief rabbis of Palestine and incredible teachers of spirit uh, and, and, and growth um, taught in particular in his works on repentance. Um, he spoke about this necessity to study um, laws, not just ethics in the broadest sense, but actually all the laws that govern interpersonal interaction uh, in order to really um, cultivate uh, these, these practices and have them sort of flow back into us. Um, we're gonna briefly touch on um, two last uh, techniques and then try to wrap up so we have time for questions. Um, so technique number four, and I love this as a pulpit rabbi, um, is the development of the idea of sermons, homilies on ethical topics. Um, and so uh, Rav Yisrael Salanter really emphasizes that the teacher actually needs to give sermons about ethics. Uh, and here he says something fascinating that I think really shows kind of the birth of the concept of the sermon as we have it today, uh, which is in addition to public discourses, he would preach in seclusion to his students. And this is the part I want to focus in on. The foundation of his homilies was not explanation of verses and resolution of midrashic texts, rather things which were conceived and expressed from his heart. Deep investigations into the ways of service of God, reward and punishment and character. After expounding for many hours, he would sometimes clothe an idea in an expression of a verse or a teaching of the sages of blessed memory. In other words, he knew what he needed to talk about from his psyche and from his insight into the challenges we have to becoming our best selves. And he would talk about that at length. And only later would he circle back and situate that in a rabbinic or biblical teaching. Um, but, you know, he sort of turned the sermon on his head. It wasn't an expounding of Jewish texts and then come to the message. It was deliver the message which flows out of your heart and your psyche and then ground that at some later point 
um, in a Jewish source or text. And often, you know, I always thought of that as sort of a forced or inauthentic approach. Um, but Rabbi Yisrael Salanter really grounds that as a, a deeply Jewish approach to follow our, you know, ethical sense of what's right. Of course, it has to link to a Jewish teaching, um, but it doesn't have to lead with that Jewish teaching. Uh, and we have a little bit more in these sections about the way he also engaged in lengthy seclusion and introspection um, as a part of his process and, and met with his students only occasionally in that process. The last key piece here um, is the Musar house. And again, as you can see, building you know, all of this infrastructure, different ways of learning, different ways of teaching, prayer, which we didn't get a chance to touch on, but praying over um, ethical development, all of this could feel like a different version of Judaism um, because of how it touches so many of the central pieces of Jewish life. Um, and that's, again, part of what aroused the opposition to this was sort of everyone agrees it's great to be ethically perfected, but this is sort of overtaking the entire picture. Um, and this sort of found, again, it's um, one of its key points of, of tension around this idea, the Beit Musal, right? In a, every important institution in Judaism is a Beit. You have a Beit Sefer, a school. You have a Beit Knesset, a synagogue. You have a Beit Midrash, a study house. And now Rabbi Israel Salanter says, if you really want to become, you know, ethically developed, you actually need a separate institution for this, a place for the study of Musar. And he exerted great effort. Effort also means fundraising, right? He had to exert great effort to build this house with the help of generous hearted people. And this is where the rubber meets the road when we debate about where our, our communal dollars should go, where our philanthropic investment should go. Um, and he believed that it should go into the construction of these houses of Musar. And then, of course, you see that this was a live debate because he responds to his detractors. Some would ask this question, what need for a separate house of study of Musar? Um, and he says, if you're really invested in this, you need a special place. Um, you can't be distracted by your family. You can't be distracted by the people who are studying Gemara and Halakha. They'll disturb you and you'll disturb them, right? And this, this is a powerful piece. What of the fact that sometimes one study of Musar arouses them to weeping and their eyes flow with tears? Won't they be embarrassed to immerse in it? You need a safe space for this kind of work. And so there has to be a bait miuchad, a dedicated house. Um, and uh, if you have a chance to um, take for yourself to kind of copy and paste or open up in your own browsers um, the, the uh, source sheet, which was also emailed to you, you see just here, you know, some of his sayings which have been collected, which give the sense of how broad and central he sees this ethical development. Um, uh, I think, you know, some of the lines, It's harder to repair even one trait than it is to review the entire Talmud. Now, again, this is someone who did review the entire Talmud. So he was speaking from knowledge and he was really holding both of these pieces. And he wasn't saying repair one trait and don't review the entire Talmud, but he was acknowledging how central and how um, essential this work needed to be and that needed to be given its own space and time um, and devoted effort in order to, to, to make a difference. Um, and as for the sort of um, impact and importance of it uh, in another sense, um, he says it's important for it's worth a, for a person to study Musar one's whole life, even if it enables one just to restrain from a single expression of Lashon Hara, um, because and this comes back to sort of the final piece of how he saw his work overall and outreach and kind of capturing Jews to a traditional approach. If Lashon, Lashon Hara, evil speech or slanderous speech is spoken in the Beit Midrash and Kovno, they profane the Shabbat in Paris meaning there is a downstream effect of how we conduct ourselves that links from sort of one choice to another. And I think here in another way, he's saying, um, 
you know, if we don't show ethical perfection and excellence, the, the vision of Judaism that we're putting forth will be suspect and, and will be, un, you know, unconvincing. Uh, and all the other pieces of traditional observance will fall away. The Shabbat, which isn't necessarily obviously linked to ethical behavior, but if those who purport to be traditionally observant speak ill of others, what's the compelling case um, to keep the Shabbat at that point? Uh, and that's, again, what sort of um, draws him to some degree into this work and, uh, and advocating for it and devoting his life to its vision. Um, so was he successful? I'm going to take one more minute um, to kind of uh, circle back with that question and then I'll, I'll look in the chat and we'll take uh, questions and comments. Um, so uh, Professor Etkis in his analysis says a couple of important things. Um, I'm going to just read a couple of quotes. He says, indeed, the student of modern Eastern European Jewish history will be hard put to identify another case of a new movement whose birth and initial dissemination may be directly attributed to the initiative and activity of a single individual, as is the case in that of Rabbi Yisrael Salantra and the Musar movement. Rabbi Yisrael laid the theoretical groundwork for the new movement. He organized its first cells, right? He actually gathered groups to do this, as we saw along the way, and fostered their growth. He led the movement until his, until his death at the beginning of the 1880s, and his disciples and their disciples in turn led the movement thereafter. And I think the question we can sort of ask is the world today um, of, of kind of Jewish life doesn't necessarily look the way uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter dreamed of and envisioned. I think if he had had his way, every village would have a Musar house and we would actually spend what I would call a disproportionate relative to our association amount of time studying and doing the work of Musar. And that's not what our Jewish communities look like. But the very fact that as Rabbi Stein Koken said at the outset, your synagogue does Musar studies. The fact that in traditional yeshivot, there is a Musar Seder, even if it's 15 minutes devoted to the study of some of the classical works of the medieval and early modern period, that is incredibly revolutionary and unprecedented and truly happened in so many ways because of the single-handed effort um, of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And in that sort of way of swinging pendulums of movements, I sort of feel that it's settled in a good place. Um, it's increasingly incorporated into our vision of a Jewish life without crowding out all the other parts. And in that way, the interplay between his single-minded devotion and the response of his detractors perhaps has led us to a place where Musar has, you know, a, I hope a continuing to grow, but a, a recognized place in Jewish communal life and infrastructure um, without overtaking all the other pieces of what it means to be Jewish. Um, and that's in, 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 in tribute and in credit to this single extraordinary individual. So I hope you had a chance to appreciate, um, you know, his work, his writing, um, the context in which he was working, um, for us to think about the tools that he offered and, and um, where they fit into our own work uh, and, and where we find ourselves today, you know, 150, 170 years after, uh, after his work. Um, so. I'm going to pause and take a look in the chat for questions. Yeah, uh, there was a question posted over there, but we have about 10 minutes. So if anybody would like to unmute themselves. Um, Rabbi Stein Koken, I don't know if you had a first question or if we should open it up. I think my husband actually has one. Oh, good. <laughs> Professor, Professor Stein Koken. Uh, thank, thank you. This is really enjoyable and fascinating. Um, there are many things I would happily ask you about, but I'll just start with one. And I had some interruptions here, so I apologize if I'm addressing something that you actually did talk about. But 
With regard to negative traits, specifically the Yetzer Hara, in classical rabbinic teaching, there's actually a, a place, actually a rather important place for the Yetzer Hara, as precisely that force which leads people to create families, build houses, do stuff in the world. And so I'm curious how he, he, I mean, he obviously knows though that material, does he engage with it in some way? Does he, how does he, what kind of place is he able to make for the Yetzer Hara? That is an outstanding question, thank you. Um, and I, I don't feel sufficiently uh, well-versed in his writings to give a, you know, a comprehensive answer. It seems like he rec certainly recognizes the you know, ongoing challenge of the Yetzirahara. I don't know if he attributes, you know, I don't know that there's as much of a stream you know, in his thought of what you're pointing out about its sort of constructive role um, that the sages do. There are some you know, significant uh, you know, threads in rabbinic literature about its constructive role that you're pointing to, and even in more contemporary and Hasidic thought about the power of the Yetzirahara, you know, to be harnessed for good um, and its intrinsic value. Uh, you know, in, in my reading of his writings, I see less of that. I think he really does see it as a sort of, um, you know, the darker forces within us that really need to be conquered and subdued. Of course, the conquering and subduing needs psychological insight. Brute force, you know, isn't the way. Um, and he's sort of trying to help us think beyond, you know, a, an approach we sometimes have, which is just like, just push back and just, you know, overcome it. Um, you know, I think he's trying to train us to be more thoughtful in the way that we do that. Um, but I think it's less sort of through sublimation and harnessing and more through knowing its wiles and, you know, trying to encounter them um, and, 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 and overcome them in that sense. Um, but it's an important question and um, I, I have to do more reading to answer it better. Thank you. I see Hannah or Hannah. Uh, thank you, uh, Rabbi. It's fascinating. And I'm almost to the question of why wouldn't we transform the rest of Judaism into the Musar movement? That's really where it needs to come of what we do not just by, there are way too many ultra-Orthodox communities that feel like as long as they go to the synagogue all the time and pray, they can do whatever it is to other people like, oh, it's not a big deal if we do it to the Goyim. I mean, that's a term that I've heard so many times from ultra-Orthodox uh, people that say, well, it was just done to the Goyim. Um, so having the prayer part of it as being sort of the uppermost important, you know, going to shul and, and uh, being a good family man or whatever it is, to me, the Musar movement is really much more important than anything else should be. I mean, it's like, you know, um, and the rest of the Torahs can be taught, this is on one foot, but that's where it's all about. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. It's such an important question. And I, I think, again, I, I can't speak for Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, but from my understanding of his writings, I think fundamentally he would agree with you about needing to lift up and you know outsize the focus on ethical practice. 
you know, of course, he himself was traditionally observant and he was able to sort of integrate all of that. And, you know, I, I think he would never call for turning away from any of the commandments. Um, but I think he sort of would envision a society in which we imbibe that, you know, in the homes in which we grow up in and all of the sort of ritual practice is second nature because it sort of has fewer um, ethical, uh, you know, um, obstacles to its observance. Those are just habits that we form. Um, and then we're able to focus ourselves on the ethical and interpersonal excellence of all kinds. Um, and, you know, and, and the fair treatment of all of all people. Um, so I think he I think he really aligns with that vision of making our focus that there's a sort of a grounding in the ritual and then making our focus be the ethical and the and the interpersonal. Um, I think that that's very much in line with his approach. Um, so so one, one question I have here is, you know, in these two major movements that emerge in early modernity of the Hasidic, the Hasidic movement, the Musar movement, they, they, they move back as modernity does towards the self, towards the self, right? And, um, and, and I wonder how um, with the self as the focus in many ways, um, do, we, do we actualize empathy? You know, if you think of like Carol Gilligan's care ethics, or you think of Levinas's self as kind of born in the encounter with the other, and then it feels like in Musar, and I wonder if, if you understand if, how, how Ravi Strasalanta grapples with this. It's almost like the vulnerable is a tool to my own tikkun, I, I, in an anti-Buberian kind of way. For Buber, like you're an end in yourself. For this, like I'm gonna use a little bit of water on my hands so the guy doesn't have to go get all the water. Not for him exactly, but really because it's about my own refinement. So how, do, how does empathy get achieved? And of course, this problem goes all the way back to Aristotle and virtue ethics in terms of how we think of self-refinement. Yeah, that's a great question. I also want to acknowledge, even though I, I don't feel I have a good full answer to it, it's uh, overlapping a little bit with Lauren's question about, um, you know, room to accept, accept oneself as one is. But, you know, to, to your question, I mean, I think the grounding on that, on that example, right, about, um, you know, treating someone else kindly, really circling back to our own perfection of the self, I don't... I think, I think for him, I don't know, I think for him, but that the perfection of the self is because the goal is to be kind to the other. So it, it, it may become a bit cyclical, um, hopefully not sort of self-referential, but a bit cyclical um, in that sense that yes, the, some, sometimes we have to focus, we have to see the importance in refining our own character and that motivates us to care for the other. But I think the ultimate ends for him is caring for the other. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say that I think that that's the case because I think that's the Torah's ultimate goal. And I think he is, while the focus is on working on the self, I, I think he retains what I think is the Torah's ends, which is the care for the other as the, as the starting point and the bottom line. Awesome, Aaron Moskowitz. Thank you very much, Rabbi, and thank you to our presenter. This is so fascinating, so interesting. I was going to raise the story of Rabbi Israel Salanter and the uh, carrying the water, but since you already referred to that, uh, allow me to raise one Rabbi Israel Salanter story of the student who came to Rabbi Salanter, extremely 
nervous and anxious and wanted to not continue on his path to be a shochet or ritual slaughterer anymore because so much was at stake. It's such a high pressure job. He explained to the rabbi because the whole community will, would be eating treif if I make a mistake. He wanted, so he said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a teacher. And Rabbi Salenter said, you should be just as nervous and scared about making sure you teach properly as you would be about the kosher slaughter. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Let's take one more question before Rabbi Exler wraps up for us. Someone who hasn't spoken yet. Rabbi Shmuley. Yes. Hi, Matthew. Yeah. I just wonder if anyone wanted to touch upon Solange's role during the cholera epidemic of 1848 which is very relevant today, where he actually required people to eat on Yom Kippur so they wouldn't die from the cholera. And I've said all these articles recently about it and the need for uh, Jewish community to do more. He built hospitals and other things. And whether that had anything to do with him leaving Vilna the following year, whether there was a reaction. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for raising that. It's so appropriate, of course, as you said, in, in this incredibly challenging pandemic time. I think uh, I'll just add, you know, what it reflects about the way he saw his role as deeply engaged in public life um, and as someone who was not afraid to challenge the norms um, and to sort of put himself out there um, in order to, you know, preserve what he saw as the ultimate Torah values, you know, which are health, health and well-being as one of them in this case. Um, you know, and uh, he really was, he was a, a controversial and fascinating figure. Again, often I think we're just, we're, we're handed the image of him as the person who taught us to be good people. And that's how he should be remembered. But the more I read and learn about him, the more I see that, you know, he, he had to endure controversy. There were hard and challenging encounters that he had in a whole host of ways. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a complex life. Um, but he bequeathed us an incredible, incredible gift, uh, which, you know, we, we all continue to absorb and utilize aware or unaware um, until today. So I, I'm, I feel happy to share his teaching with you. I'm so it's a testament to him how many of you are familiar with his, you know, with his uh, writings, teaching stories, involvements and could introduce those things. Uh, and uh, just really end by saying what a treat and privilege it is to, to learn and study and grow with all of you and look forward to the opportunity to do it again. Please always feel welcome in person or virtually here in Riverdale as well. Thank you so much, Rev. Steven. Thank you. Rev. Steven. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Nitsan and Beth El for you. joining us. I give us all the bracha Thank that you. in all we do in our life, we should continue to grow. We should continue to grow in all that we do each day and do so joyfully. Friends, next Monday, we're we are launching forward in our science and religion, our year of, of, of learning science and Judaism. We're opening with Professor Ariel Anbar from ASU, Are We Alone? Reason, Religion, and the Search for Life in the Universe. We're going to be learning all year from astrophysicists, psychologists, biologists, and thinking about the relationship between Judaism and science. We hope you'll join us. Thank you for Thank being you. with Thank you. Thank you, Rav Shmuley. We couldn't Thank do you. it without Valley Bet. Thank you. Toda Raba. It's, it's an incredible Thank institution. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi. Uh,